Welcome, this is Bill Munhausen, your host for Keo's Ark's podcast. My niche is faith and religion, but that doesn't tell you the whole story because God wants us to be salt and light in every aspect of life. We'll explore government and entertainment and family and entrepreneurship and science, all through the filter of what God would want as he builds his kingdom among us. In this week's episode, I'm going to venture dangerously into local politics. Why should that be dangerous? Because politically active people are addicted to conflict. They seem to think it's noble to fight rather than figure out a solution. Regardless of ideology, many people want to destroy the opposition rather than try to resolve a conflict. Nevertheless, my ongoing hypothesis is that we have to reach beyond our ideological circles if we are ever going to make progress in restoring justice in America. Some of my political friends will take issue with this. They want to beat the opposition into submission rather than lead them to repentance. I get it. Conservatives have been held down for a long time and we want to get our way. Nevertheless, can't our way possibly be the high road? In a previous episode, I talked about antisocial behavior syndrome, psychopathy, sociopathy, and how some people just can't be won over to the side of justice. We recognize some of those people on the national political scene, but I contend that local politics is a little different. Local officials are far more approachable and less likely to be consumed by the dark side. We need to treat them as neighbors, not enemies. Before I get started, let me say this to listeners who may not be from Camden County or interested in our politics. There's a lesson in our experience for everyone. And I'll try to explain the issues well enough that you get the bigger picture. Here, then, is the story. Camden County Presiding Commissioner Greg Hasty did something amazing. He took a lie detector test and posted the results on social media. What a concept! My first thought was that every political official should do that. But then I thought, that wouldn't work for many of them. So lie detectors are not likely to become a trend in politics. But getting back to Commissioner Hasty, taking a lie detector test is really an extraordinary measure that reveals Hasty's desperation to prove he is not the bad guy he's been portrayed to be. Unfortunately for many elected officials, American politics has devolved into a beat-the-other-guy game where no mistake goes unpersecuted. It puts every politician in the awkward place of trying to prove they are imperfect but not evil. There's no question that Hasty has made mistakes, and those mistakes had bad consequences for individual citizens. He attempted to ban two men from county property for the crime of being annoying. They were critical of county government and expressed it in public meetings. Maybe their style was inappropriate and they should have been counseled, but forbidding them to access taxpayer-funded property and public facilities is not what happens in a free society. There's more to that story, but the facts are somewhat shrouded by the legal actions currently underway. The subject of Greg Hastie's post was something popularly called Gravelgate. An election cycle ago, a property owner came to County Commissioner Don Williams to ask for maintenance on a roadway passing through a neighbor's property into his own. The first complication was that the property owner had made a $2,000 contribution to Commissioner Williams' election campaign. What transpired next is unclear. Williams has said that he recused himself because of 
the obvious potential conflict of interests, and left the decision to presiding Commissioner Hasty. The second complication is that nobody knew whether the road was a public road or a private pathway. Hasty decided to claim it as a county road and sent crews to lay gravel. Here is what Hasty said in his lie detector testimony, as reported by the administrator of the test. Quote, Hasty claimed he was protecting the rights of a citizen. Therefore, he had to lay the gravel immediately before he knew all the information about the roadway. End quote. It was a hasty decision. There, I got the temptation of the pun out of my system. We won't go with any more hasty puns. Here's what Hasty said in his social media post. Quote, knowledge is important to be a commissioner. Without knowledge, mistakes are made. End quote. Almost lost in the post and his testimony in the polygraph is the fact that Hasty is admitting his mistake, that he acted before he knew all the information. This is refreshing transparency coming from an elected official. We might miss the admission because Hasty's main point is that he is honest. He went on to testify that the campaign contribution did not play any factor in the gravel and road being suddenly maintained by the county. I tend to take him at his word. Mature adults don't risk their reputation for $2,000. It's simply not worth the risk. Before I move on to the main point of this lesson in local government, let me tell you how the citizens were affected. Remember the man who made a campaign contribution and asked for help with the road? Let's call that property owner the long-timer, because he has history in the county. He is suing his new neighbor for the use of that road through their new property. I'll call them the newcomers, since they moved to Camden County from out of state. Their property once belonged to the long-timer's brother, who allowed his brother to cross his property into the long-timer's property. From what I understand, that brother passed away and left his place to his daughter, and the daughter got into a dispute with the long-timer over use of the road. When the daughter sold the land to the newcomers, the dispute with the long-timer carried over to them. Since there was no recorded easement for the long-timer to cross the newcomer's property, the long-timer tried to get the county commission to make the access a public county road, and Commissioner Hasty stepped in it by thinking, yeah, it could be a county road. In all fairness, Camden County has a lot of roads, many of which are private accesses created across farmland. This gravel-gate event has been ongoing for more than a year and has cost the newcomers thousands of dollars to defend their property rights. They came here for rural American freedom and ended up in a legal quagmire, made worse by the county commission interjecting themselves into the dispute. We can speculate about the commission's motives, such as favoring a long-timer over a newcomer, but there isn't a way for us to know and it doesn't really matter anyway. The newcomers also made lots of friends in Camden County because we're a welcoming kind of place. Those friends saw what happened to the newcomers and decided it was an injustice and didn't care much whether it was intentional or accidental. The situation has devolved in an election year into a crusade to remove Greg Hasty from office with myriad accusations of corruption and no less than four candidates running against him in the August primary. Don't misunderstand me about this. At this point, Greg Hasty will almost certainly lose his position in the primary. 
and should lose for not being sufficiently transparent throughout these various episodes. A county commissioner should not take sides in property disputes between citizens, nor should he ban citizens from public property, nor should he generate such anger from any segment of the citizens he serves. My point is we should never have gotten to such a sorry place in local politics. I reiterate what I said in the opening paragraph, that our way should be the high road. News headlines illustrate that the world is on fire politically, economically, and socially. And there are even a lot of enemies of freedom in parts of our own nation. For that reason, it's never been more important to foster unity at home to defend ourselves from the outside world. We definitely have some battles to wage at the national level in politics, and we can rightfully judge that some of our national leaders are up to no good and must be opposed. We've seen some of that corruption take place in our own state capital, where politicians have betrayed their own party platform promises in order to achieve an agenda of their own. We can righteously oppose such people, but our attitude toward local government must be different because local politics is our only protection against the corruption from outside. We've allowed the least honorable influences of politics to dominate our feelings and drive us to harm rather than heal in our community. When I mention this to my political friends, they say I'm being naive, that local politicians are just as irredeemable as the national ones. If that is true, our situation is truly hopeless. So I reject it until I'm proven wrong. I have to believe that the people we meet face-to-face can be more reasonable than the ones we only know through media soundbites. Consider the two guys who were banned from county property. We sat back and watched it happen when we should have at least tried to intervene to mediate a more reasonable solution. When the long-timer and the newcomers got into a property dispute and got the county commission involved, it would have made better sense to call for a conference of all affected property owners to air their needs and differences and try to arrive at a consensus. We left that up to one person, he handled it badly, and we just picked sides. It's time for our community to make a choice to do what is honorable and just, or to be like the rest of the world. The rest of the world wants to fight among themselves because it's so much easier than figuring out what is right. Conflict requires no thought, nor is there ever the risk of apology or compromise. But conflict also rarely gets resolved and put to bed. Our community needs to be better than that, building each other up instead of tearing down. You might ask why this is right for Lake of the Ozarks or for every local community. It's because every community, people like us, needs a kind of socio-political oasis. We need to have peace and model that for the rest of the nation. By contrast, consider what takes place on the national scene. Eight years of a Republican administration followed by eight years of Democrats, followed by four years of Donald Trump, followed by... Joe Biden, for whoever knows how long. It's a never-ending pageant of political intrigue fueled by 24-7 news media. Nobody enjoys it, and the process never produces lasting results. For example, how many decades have national politicians argued about immigration reform? Has any appointment to the Supreme Court been a bipartisan decision? Do they agree about taxes or foreign policy or gun control or reproductive rights? Let's face it, these people are wearing us out. 
That's why we need to create a peaceful haven in our local communities, and that can only happen if we guard ourselves against useless arguments and conflict. The other reason to do local politics differently is we need to be united in defending our local interests. Although some would say we are not under attack, I'll give you an example. Camden County, and indeed all of Missouri, stands firmly behind protection of our Second Amendment rights to possess firearms. And that stand puts Missourians at odds with the federal government. I read an article by Lee Williams that describes a new strategy by the federal government to infringe on gun rights. After years of trying to suspend the Second Amendment and failing to overcome the will of the people, the Biden administration is implementing a workaround. Rather than revoke the right to buy guns, they will simply and legally eliminate businesses that sell guns. Over the last 11 months, the ATF has revoked the FFL licenses of 273 firearm sellers, nearly seven times the normal rate of license revocations. Several months ago, a crime was committed in Camden County, and that crime has never been punished because it's considered a legal crime. ATF agents raided a local gun store, confiscated an estimated quarter of a million dollars of inventory, and charged the store owner with numerous infractions. The crime I am referring to is not the accused infractions. The crime is the inappropriate use of federal authority to violate the rights of a citizen. The crime is the use of force without due process. Here's what I know of the story. The FFL dealer, Jim Skelton, is about as far from a criminal as you can imagine. He is a retired locksmith who served Camden County residents for many years and decided to open a gun store as a kind of retirement hobby. Consider the nature of the locksmith business. A locksmith is entrusted with the great responsibility of personal and commercial security at its most fundamental level. He literally handles the keys to your stuff and often has professional access second only to the owner of a home or business. It's a profession that requires trust and Skelton honored that trust impeccably. This is not the profile of an outlaw. Firearms owners routinely buy, sell, and trade firearms and accessories under the assumption that such activities are protected by the United States Constitution, and nobody would assume they forfeited those rights under any circumstances. Jim Skelton would eventually learn the hard way that FFL holders are special. When he decided to open a store to deal in firearms and antique collectibles, he applied for an FFL, a federal firearms license, and expected training in how to perform the requirements. However, that's not how federal regulations tend to work. Consider your obligations for income tax. There is no training for taxpayers, so you can be assured of doing everything right, and that's especially burdensome for business owners. The IRS knows it's impractical to train every taxpayer because individual training would cost more than the tax revenue being collected. Their strategy is to give you some basic written information and assume most people will do it mostly right. Over time, every taxpayer seems to learn something new about taxes and improves the accuracy of their tax return. Furthermore, the IRS uses software to flag elements of individual returns that seem abnormal, which can trigger audits of those returns. The IRS then has considerable latitude regarding infractions, mostly involving fines and re-education. 
Occasionally they make an example of someone and destroy them financially, but it's all in the spirit of making taxpayers appropriately terrified of them. They don't want to throw most taxpayers in jail because they want you to keep paying your taxes. The FFL situation is different because ideology comes into play. The evidence is that Democrats want to eliminate FFL dealers rather than re-educate them. Jim Skelton tried several times to get clarification regarding procedures, but the combination of COVID, bureaucratic indifference, and eventually hostility resulted in no help. The ATF conducted a sting operation against Skelton Tactical, in which a couple visited the business and the woman went through the process of buying a firearm and passing the background check. Then the man signed the credit card receipt. It's the sort of thing that happens every day in every other type of retail situation, but it's technically illegal for a firearm transaction. Even if the couple share the same credit card, the one applying for the purchase has to sign the receipt. Makes you wonder whether the ATF realizes the other member of the couple might write the check that pays the credit card statement. Makes you wonder whether the ATF realizes the man might borrow the woman's gun later, or that the woman or man might subsequently sell or trade it. It is complexity without purpose, the sort of thing a politician can use to implement policy without voter approval. We citizens learned about the ATF raid and talked about what should be done, but got no support from state or local officials. Our county sheriff came on key radio and said something to the effect that he was glad he didn't know about it until it was essentially over. He said if he had known in time, he would have had to make a decision. The sheriff didn't elaborate, but I suspect the decision would be whether to, to, to uphold his oath to defend the U.S. Constitution or just obey federal officials. The rationale for this quandary is what state and local officials call the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which they interpret to mean that federal officials can do whatever they want. They're dictators and we have to obey them. That doesn't sound very nice. The framers of the Constitution knew they needed a provision to ensure that sovereign states would conform, so they included some wording to that effect. To paraphrase, it says that any law or action by the federal government to implement the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Many interpreters of the Constitution think that simply means federal law trumps state and local law, but that's clearly not true. Many local communities have sanctuary cities where federal immigration laws are considered invalid. Several states have legalized cannabis in spite of federal laws against it. They can do that because federal laws that apply are not supported by the Constitution. So, if the Constitution says the right to bear arms shall not be infringed, we would have to say shutting down arms dealers must be contrary to the Constitution, and therefore anything but supreme. Unfortunately, our state and local officials don't want to rock the boat by challenging federal authorities. They're far too civilized to risk a gunfight with ATF agents. Most state and local officials recognize that unconstitutional acts by federal authorities are invalid, but they add that federal laws and acts are are valid unless they're declared unconstitutional by the courts. Since courts act slowly and only act when a law is challenged, it's a catch-22. State and local authorities don't challenge a federal action because it hasn't been challenged yet. 
it's easier to let citizens like Mr. Skelton fend for themselves. To understand this point fully, we have to go back to America's founding documents, which were crafted at a time when the colonists were under greatest duress from their despot king. The Declaration of Independence contains the famous lines about truths we hold evident, that our rights come from God, but it continues to describe the obligation of government. Quote, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That is the primary purpose of government, to secure the rights of every citizen. Our state and local officials have too long forgotten that sacred responsibility, and this episode is a reminder. However, the purpose is not to cast blame toward those officials. It's a reminder for all of us that we the people have the responsibility to either give or withdraw our consent for the way they govern. It's our fault if they have forgotten their primary purpose, or if they think we give our consent. Local officials have to be brave to do what is right in the face of federal power, but we can give them cover by joining with them to protect our community, our friends, and neighbors. Unfortunately, there's a rub. Local governments typically do not see protecting their citizens as their responsibility. Perhaps it's because of the civil rights years of the 1950s and 60s, when the federal government intervened mostly in the South to protect the rights of African Americans. We forget that local governments back then saw federal intervention as an intrusion in their affairs. We forget that federal action was only necessary because those states were slow in enacting rights that were guaranteed by the United States Constitution. Federal action was the appropriate enforcement of the Supremacy Clause. Local governments seem to have taken those years as a signal to defer civil rights issues of any kind to the federal government, but that leaves us vulnerable to violations by the federal government. What role has local government assumed? One role is simply administrative. Our city and county governments have a steady flow of property and sales tax that has to be spent. So much of the task is to oversee spending by government employees to do such things as maintain roads, enforce laws, and provide services for property owners. A second significant role of local government is economic development, looking for ways to attract business investment to provide jobs and increase tax revenues. A true conservative might say that interference in the economy isn't the proper role of government, but politicians want to be creative and want to increase their budgets, so they've taken on that role. A third issue for local government is systemic. By that I mean created by the system of government. In Camden County, we have only two county commissioners, along with a presiding commissioner, to oversee a multi-million dollar budget. Their jobs are considered part-time and are established by Missouri state statute. When I visit my county commissioner and suggest a civil rights issue, his eyes glaze over with that, why are you telling me this look? They lack the time to consider such things and believe they lack the authority to address it. That supremacy clause concept tells them that citizen rights are dictated by federal law, not local ordinance. The attitude is difficult to overcome, but it must be overcome if local government is to have a meaningful role in protecting its citizens. Some would say that we should simply elect more conservative local officials, but I think but think about that a little deeper. Conservative candidates believe in limited government. 
So when elected to local government, they apply that standard by implementing a smaller, more passive local government. Conservatives forget that their ideology applies to federal government, not local. What the founders of America tried to create is a governing structure that puts more of the power in the hands of local government by carefully defining the limits of federal authority. That means a true conservative should seek more authority locally rather than less. So when the federal government tries to limit our freedoms, local government must push back with local power. I'll give you one example of the local government problem. A few months ago, some of my friends were being threatened by their employers with losing their jobs unless they were vaccinated. They weren't losing their jobs because of poor performance or failing to fulfill an agreement at the time of their initial employment. The COVID vaccine was a completely new requirement after years of employment. Although it can be debated, I see this as wrongful termination. My county commissioner's reaction was that nobody has a right to a job, and if they're terminated, they can just get another job. I guess we should tell that to people who are fired because of their race, or victims of sexual harassment, or people who are laid off. Can't they just get another job? In those cases, there are legal protections, and government intervenes to protect them. I could have more easily considered the argument that the vaccine is about community health, rather than the argument that government can't interfere with a private business. So the question before us is how we might encourage local government to welcome a broader role in terms of defending its citizens, because our local community needs to be an oasis, a place of safety from the outside world. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and now it's time to draw it all together. We began with the controversial Grabilgate decision and how Camden County voters became polarized over it politically. Rather than seeking to resolve it, they got mad about it and began taking sides. Then we related the example of a federal agency, the ATF, confiscating the property of a local firearms retailer and how that appears to be a new federal strategy to restrict gun rights. It's contrary to the Constitution, but we've allowed the federal government, through the Supremacy Clause, to be the ones who decide what is constitutional. It's the proverbial fox guarding the hen house. Then we talked about how the role of local government makes them unprepared to be the guardians of the constitutional rights of citizens. They all swear an oath of office that goes like this. Quote, I solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. End quote. Notice that even local officials are obligated to defend the Constitution. The obligation is not optional and can't be deferred to someone else. It's this local government piece where we really need a revolution in our thinking. Whereas there are powerful people working to consolidate power in Washington, D.C., Americans need to reassert power at the state and local level. In order to accomplish this, we need to do two things. First, we need to get the entire community on board, not just conservatives. As I discussed in a previous episode, the American electorate is too fragmented to depend entirely on your ideological base. 
Rather, we need to convince mainstream voters that defending your rights at the local level is in everyone's interests. They are, after all, our rights. The second thing we need to do is elect local officials who have a real passion for the Constitution, not merely a passive assent. Business will succeed or fail on its own merit and doesn't need to be developed by governing officials. Administration is necessary but can be largely automated through an annual planning and budget process. Problems with the governing structure can be overcome by involving community volunteers. Those measures leave local officials time to defend the rights of the citizens they serve. I've titled this episode The New Politics of Local Resolution. That's because it all begins with changing the tone of politics at the local level. Yes, we have to hold officials accountable, but we can best achieve community goals through conversation instead of conflict. Rather than clinging to ideology, we need to identify the key elements of an issue which the most people can agree, even if it's not a perfect solution. Then, and only then, can we change local government to be a champion of freedom to, vet, to defend against the possibility of tyranny. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good. 